Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I am here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. We are also here with Bridget. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning. <laughs> what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. Now, today, we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different because we're going to be spending much of the episode indoors. Right, Steve? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to let Bridget tell the audience where we are because normally we're out in the woods somewhere. Mm -hmm. But today, where are we? We're at Sonnenberg Gardens. It's a state historic park in Canandaigua, which is southeast of Rochester. And so we are in New York State. We're not too far away from our normal stomping grounds. We're usually much closer, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you may remember back in August of 2017, folks, that I did an episode with Kyle Webster, uh, who also works for the New York State Parks Environmental Field Team. So that episode focused on the work they're doing trying to restore natural grassland habitat. But Bridget, She's working with native ecotypes, right? Yeah, so I'm running a plant materials program that provides local ecotype plant materials for projects, including the grassland project that Kyle's working on. Awesome. So that term ecotypes, we will be defining that. So if you're already saying, I don't know what you're talking about, don't worry. We are going to be covering that. It'll be but, the most esoteric episode <laughs> yet. <laughs> so we're going to be spending a lot of today inside the greenhouses here, right? Yep. Yeah, so Bridget sent us some papers that Steve and I have spent some time looking over. We've done some research into other papers. So we're going to be finding out what Bridget's job is here at Sonnenberg. We're going to be talking a little bit about what Sonnenberg Gardens is all about. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to be talking specifically about native ecotypes and how they're used in restoration plantings. So. I want to really start off by talking about what ecological restoration is. And that really just aims to assist in the recovery of degraded or damaged ecosystems. And it can include the reestablishment or augmenting uh, species that have been lost or damaged or harmed in some way, usually because of human actions. So I have a good story about that. Back when I used to work at the Buffalo Audubon Society, we were involved in a restoration project at Woodlawn Beach, which at that time was a relatively new state park. And there was an effort to restore some of the sand dune habitat. This was back, geez, probably around 2000. And they were trying to restore beach grass. So Ammophilia brevilugulata. I think oh, I got that. Boy. I nailed it. <laughs> I was going to say, you're so confident <laughs> that you got that. I don't know. So at the, t at the time, I didn't know really anything about restoration. The executive director at the time, he was really running it. He didn't have a background in ecology or plants. So when it came time to order our, the plants, we just ordered them from anywhere we could get them. And we got them from a place in Northeast Long Island. So it was in Riverhead. So we were getting beach grass from a beach habitat along the ocean. And we were bringing them to Western New York and planting them on a freshwater beach. That would be an example of not using a local ecotype <laughs> in a restoration planting, right? Because yeah. at the time, we really didn't, didn't know much about it. Now we know more. Local ecotypes are always the best to use, right? Yeah, so... <laughs> um, You're supposed to say, well... <laughs> well, <laughs> extensive research um, over decades has pointed to local being best because it kind of makes sense. A plant that has been in an area for years and years, is, and that's ecologically uh, or evolutionarily 
adapted. <laughs> adapted yeah. is going to be the best to survive in this one replanted in the same area. Okay, so Steve, we've used that word ecotype a lot. Why don't we head inside? Because yeah, I sure. get the feeling Bridget's a little cold here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and you're going to define ecotypes for the audience. Right? In a roundabout way, yeah, but that's right. kind of my style. All right, so we're heading into one of the greenhouses now. Whoa. So there's Ooh. a bunch of potted plants all around. I used to work at the Buffalo Botanical Gardens, and this is really bringing me back. This is nice. <laughs> Steve, tell us about that term, ecotype, and then I think we should let Bridget do some talking. She can introduce herself properly. Yeah, sure. Like I said, I'm going to do it a little bit roundabout. I might have an agenda, at least a, maybe a teaching a little bit about evolution agenda. And I thought today's topic was a great excuse to use an already overly used quote by uh, Dobzhansky. Who's that? Oh, he's a he's a really famous geneticist, and oh. and one of one of that's a contradiction in terms, right there. <laughs> <laughs> and the quote a lot of people like to uh, poach from him is nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And I it's think I have heard that. really really difficult, yeah, to to avoid evolution when you're <laughs> dealing with any biological topic. So I'll set up an imaginary scenario. Uh, it's going to be much simpler than reality, um, and we're also going to be moving unnaturally fast through time. So. <laughs> It's a hypothetical, simplified... Yeah. Yeah. Right, I think it'll get the point across. So imagine you have a plant species that's spread from eastern North America all the way to western North America. It's kind of spreading from coast to coast. And then there was a few glacial and interglacial periods that have separated the populations. And these populations, they're no longer near each other, so they can't really breed together anymore. Um, so there's no gene flow or gene migration between the eastern and western populations. So over time, each population develops adaptations to the biotic and abiotic factors where they're located. So maybe the water is a limiting factor in the western population and sunlight is a limiting factor in the eastern population. Again, it's usually not just one thing. There's a lot of things, but you know, just for this example. So each population has a bit of variations. The western plants that deal with water stress better are going to reproduce better and more of their genes are going to be carried into the next generations. And in the east, plants that deal with limited sunlight better are going to reproduce more and their genes will be carried into the next generation. And since mutations are impossible to avoid, maybe there are some beneficial and brand new traits that appear in populations over time. Like maybe the flower color changes and attracts different pollinators or maybe they flower at different times of the year, or maybe they change in pollen or pollen receptor morphology, or maybe there's a change in chromosome number, or maybe all of the above, you know, any, any combination of these. But eventually, the two populations become unable to reproduce together, even if they were in the same location. And at this point, it would be safe to say that these two populations are actually different species altogether. And depending on the time and genetic differences, they, they'll probably be in the same genus or at, the, you know, at least the same family. But they're clearly different species. All right, so well before these two populations of the same species became different species, and long before they were even subspecies of the same species, they were ecotypes. So early on in their separation. Yeah, so they still resemble the rest of the members of the species, but there are just enough differences for ecologists and taxonomists to consider it an ecotype. If there were any around at that time. Right, yeah. So ecotypes are just races of a species that have specialized adaptations to a particular ecosystem in certain parts of that species range. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I also want to say that it's also important to make sure that an ecotype isn't simply mistaken for regular phenotypic plasticity. 
And some of the ways that people get around making sure that this mistake isn't happening is you can do uh, plenty of experiments. You can transplant plants between populations to see if they respond to the different ecological conditions similarly. So let's say if two populations look very different in different habitats, and then you switch them and they still look different, then you most likely have an ecotype. Probably the simplest way to describe it, and Bridget, jump in if you have a better way, it's just within a certain population of plants, due to different genetics, you might have a different form. So it might be taller or smaller, it might have different leaf size, it might have different flowering time or hardiness. They're adapted to certain environmental conditions, right? Yeah, and they're not a different species because, yeah. as you said, they can still interbreed. Yeah. One thing that I'm going to jump in quick with is this knowledge of local ecotypes. I didn't realize that this has been known of in forestry circles for a while and that there are even tree seed zones. So if seeds are collected in one area, it would be recommended that they're planted not too far away because you might be planting it in a different seed zone. So even though it's the same species, it's, not gonna, it's likely that it's not going to do as well. So I was actually able to find seed zone maps for different states, not all states. Mm-hmm. And it's for listeners out there, it's not the same thing as those zone hardiness maps oh, right. that you see saying that you shouldn't be planting strawberries north of this latitude. It's really looking at, even within individual states, and saying if a sugar maple is collected in western New York, uh, the seed, you may not, it might not do as well if you plant it, say, up in the Adirondacks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think also not just looking at survival of the plant, I think what makes our program a little different is that we are looking at how that specific ecotype functions in the ecoregion. And so in this ecoregion, you have insects that have evolved with the plant based on the certain times in that ecoregion that the plant may be flowering or seeding or also insects that may eat the plant there may be differences between ecoregions. And so just that specialized relationship that the plant develops within an ecoregion is important for the larger picture of the ecoregion, not just sure. survival of the yeah. plant. Yeah, and it's not and it's not just growing conditions either, yeah. right? Light and moisture. I think that's a good point to kind of take a step back and to introduce your yourself properly and where we're at and exactly what you're doing here. So I'm going to turn it over to Bridget Weirs Bicky. <laughs> <laughs> so she was our contact through New York State Parks why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up where you are now? Yeah, I started college at University of Rochester wanting to study genetics and ended up transferring to SUNY ESF. And when What's I, SUNY ESF for people um, that don't in know? In Syracuse, the State University of Environmental Science and Forestry. So before transferring to SUNY ESF, I actually was involved with the environmental field team as an intern and maintained that relationship with forces a program with New York State Parks and involving college students and as part of the environmental field team I was working on restoration projects and actually at that point the team was already collecting seed and had a plant donation program and so when I eventually got hired on two years later to join the environmental field team I took on that plant donation program and seed collecting to provide for the restoration project. So the the donation program, is that private citizens are donating plants? Yeah, so we were working with different native plant societies, some of which were doing native seed collection. But basically we had restoration projects, needed a lot of seed, and were removing invasive species and needed to put plants back in, and didn't have a lot of funding to purchase plants. And we had some great local native plant nurseries 
around, but also wanted those more local ecotypes and plants that weren't selected for to have like beautiful characteristics. Not for ornamental reasons. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So the plant program that you're part of then, is that just providing plants for New York State Parks projects? Yeah, so the plant materials program currently provides, it will provide just for New York State Parks, but currently provides for projects on the environmental field team, and then also for projects in the central region. So right now we're in the Finger Lakes region, there's central region, and potentially the, the Saratoga region we're working with this year. Okay, so, so those other two regions, just for the listeners, those are a little further east in New York. Why don't we now talk a little bit about the history of the site here? So Sonnenberg Gardens, what is this place all about? Yeah, so here we are in the greenhouses at Sonnenberg Gardens. These are historic greenhouses. They are Lord and Burnham style, so if anyone's been to the New York Botanic Gardens, it's the same designer that designed these greenhouses, built between 1903 and 1915. And these greenhouses were historically used to grow up fruit and house Mary Thompson's collection. So, so this was this was private? Yes. Originally? So, exactly. So Mary Thompson and Frederick Ferris were the owners of this estate. Right now it's a 50 acre near state historic park, but previously it was a 300 acre site. And so it has a mansion, it has gardens, and it had the greenhouses. So Sonnenberg is a nonprofit that functions at the state historic park, and they promote and interpret the life, the times, and the legacy of Canandaigua's Thompson family estate. Why is it called Sonnenberg? Yeah, so Sonnenberg, um, this was one of their summer homes, one of the Thompson's family summer homes, and Sonnenberg means sunny hill. So ah, okay. it was like a characteristic gotcha. description. Okay. So the site came to the state. They're interpreting the family's history and what they did. And then how did the environmental field team get involved? So I had mentioned how we were already collecting seeds and had a plant donation program. So then in January of last year, we actually found out about Sonnenberg having unused greenhouse space that they couldn't fill because they produce some plants for their gardens, but there's so much greenhouse space here available. So we partnered with Sonnenberg Gardens and already had seed that we could grow out in the greenhouses. And being able to grow out some of that seed we collected just gives us a lot more control in our restoration project. And for a lot of species, increase the survivorship of the, the plants that eventually get planted out. So you've really only been using the, utilizing the greenhouses here since January 2017? Yep, exactly. Oh, so it's relatively recent. Yeah, this oh, is wow. definitely a new project. Wow. Yeah, newer than I thought. I really had no idea. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, we just had someone show up, and we should introduce them because they may jump onto the mic as well. I don't know, for regular listeners, I may have mentioned Whitney Carlton before, but you are the big boss of the environmental field team, right? Oh, gosh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I, I do lead the environmental field team, but everybody has their own uh, amazing projects, and they do a fantastic job leading. So uh, Bridget will have far more detail on her program than I ever could, and um, I just help drive the machine, I think. You're the, you're the puppet master. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, maybe. So <laughs> yeah, all of these, all of these references are a little further from what I'd like. But I'm the stewardship specialist for state parks, which loosely translates to assistant regional biologist. So we have a regional biologist for both the Finger Lakes and Central Region. His name is Tom Hughes, and he is based out of Central Region, which has a ton of stuff happening on its own. So our environmental field team functions basically as the regional biologist for the Finger Lakes region. And uh, I've been working with parks for almost six years now. Started up utilizing interns, and then when I was able to hire staff and create this team 
early on and a couple years ago we became regional and now we have all these great projects throughout the whole Finger Lakes region. And Whitney first contacted us, uh, I don't know, before summer 2017, really because you were trying to spread the word about what all the great work that your team is doing, right? Absolutely. I think that it's rare for a state agency to have a full team that is able to spend this much time on important details like Bridget's going to talk about today. And uh, it's truly special and something that without help of you know, your podcast and non-conventional formats, we're not going to get out to the general public. Uh, the people that would find out about what we're doing in agency are going to find out no matter what, we need to really be promoting this and letting the public know how much good we're trying to do. Yeah, and I would say Steve and I are relatively involved in the natural history community of the goings on. Yeah, I mean, we're paying attention. And before you contacted me, I didn't know this was going on in the state parks. Yeah, so, exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, hopefully we're spreading the word. And please, if you're listening and have any interest in helping out or getting involved in a Finger Lakes park, get in touch. So. Any park, really, or any yeah, state park, any right? any state park, we can put you in touch with the right people. We've got a pretty close connection with all the other regions, but uh, but we want you to get connected in Finger Lakes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we'll share contact information at the end of the show and also... Uh, in our episode notes. In our episode yeah. notes as well, yeah. Well, why don't we go see... Because with the greenhouse we're in now, this isn't one of the ones you're utilizing, right? So we're in the large greenhouse complex here, and it has a left wing and a right wing, and the left wing is open for the public to walk through and see Mary Thompson's collections. Um, so that has orchids and cacti, and then as we move to the right wing, we'll see the production space for the plant materials program. Okay, so why don't we head over there? Yeah. We'll talk about what we're seeing on the way. So as we're walking here, I've seen some uh, old, yeah, old man's, old man's beard, beard, right? Is it old man's beard? Is that what it is? I don't know. <laughs> we can cut that out. I thought out. it was a Talantia. Yeah. So we're passing by the orchid collection. All right, so we are in the, the greenhouse that's being utilized by the environmental field team. And Bridget, as we walked in, you said something great. <laughs> she said, there's not much going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So we want to overwinter a lot of our plants so they experience the natural conditions. So actually a lot of our, our plugs are either outside or in the basement where it's cooler temperatures and they are remaining dormant over the winter. Right. So one thing that we've been doing right now to, to fill some of our heated space is woody cuttings because we can cut them while they're dormant outside and then propagate them in the greenhouse and just get them started so that way they'll be ready to plant in the spring. So to give people an, uh, just a visual of where we're at, there's really uh, two big rooms we're looking at. Uh, there's a table down the middle, shelves down the side. Glass walls, glass ceilings. Yeah, yeah, but in the middle, there are many, I'd say a few dozen pots with bare branches of look like um, saplings. So yeah. these are cuttings of dogwood species. Okay. So we're actually using four greenhouses and two of them are heated right now. These are greenhouses built in the early 1900s, but are seeing restoration and have had heating installed recently. All right, and, and this is a, a native ficus? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a little bit extension. Of okay. Yeah, some of, the, some of these are, are just 
just visiting while they move stuff around in the main greenhouse, right, Bridget? Yeah. But, uh, but also a lot of the restoration that's happening in here is happening because of Bridget's project, okay. because of the plant materials program revitalizing this space. Um, now that they know that there's going to be a permanent installation in here, they know that they have the means to apply for grants and to ask for funding where they couldn't before because they might have had, you know, a visiting show, but nothing substantial that the visitors could constantly look at. And even Bridget's been working with David Hutchings to... The director here at Sondenberg. Who's the director at Sondenberg, to create a permanent installation of, of signage and exhibit through here. So, so it'll oh. be some interpretation of what you're doing. Yes. Oh, yes, that's great. She's got some semi-permanent right now that you can see. So why don't we get into some specifics now that people have background. We've identified ecotypes, mm -hmm. given them some information on Sondenberg and what your program is all about. So... One of the studies that, or I shouldn't say one of the studies, but one of the papers that you shared with us focused on genetic diversity. Yeah. So there was one called 10 Rules to Collect and Maintain Genetic Diversity. Mm -hmm. This was the first time that I had really been exposed to any literature about this particular topic. So Steve and I were talking on the way here about how broad this topic is, just talking about local ecotypes. And I think we should say at the beginning... Like, there's probably a lot of people out there that are going to be listening to the podcast saying, pointing out things right. or realizing yeah. things that were... You would need to write, like, a 50-page research paper on with a couple hundred citations or something. Yeah. And it, it's always hard to do any subject justice. Right. <laughs> yeah. We, I think we joke about it every episode. Like, th this whole podcast could have been a goldenrod podcast. You right. know, like, every episode could be a different aspect of... A, a just a goldenrod, yeah. Right. So, so we're of just, course, we're, we're going to try to be a little broad, but also as specific as we can. So, <laughs> so we're covering our butts here at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I had never really thought about is that most of the plant materials produced are produced for ornamental, ornamental purposes, really. I mean, in the U.S. and really worldwide, if you think about it, most things are grown in greenhouses because they're going to be in, sold in flower shops or in supermarkets not because they're going to be used in ecological restoration. So it's really a different animal. We're concerned about plants that when they get out, they're not going to be heavily managed. No one's going to be there taking care of them. So we need to kind of set them up to succeed without a lot of babying because hopefully we, we can rebuild ecosystems that are self-perpetuating. Now I know that's a pie-in-the-sky thing to shoot for because our landscape is so heavily modified. But just one thing I wanted to point out right at this point, going into it, is that plants that are grown for restoration that like you're doing here, you got to be thinking about genetic diversity because what the papers that you shared with us and the further research that we looked into, it does seem to say that if you have genetic diversity in mind as you move forward, whether you're collecting seeds or planting new populations, the plants are likely to be more successful. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so the paper actually has a really helpful diagram that outlines each step of the process from when you collect the seed to actually putting it, yeah, there, there <laughs> actually, is. Actually, it was the it was like one of the only things I kept in from the paper, because I, I thought the paper was good, but it was so detailed. If someone wants, we, we'll, we always have a work site so they can check it out for themselves, but there's definitely a lot of interesting steps, and it, it was interesting reading the paper because it brought me back to my time when I was actually working out of the Chicago Botanical Gardens, and I know a couple of the papers that you sent us actually were at least one or two were out of the gardens or at least some of the researchers are from there and it was fun looking back onto uh the reasoning for why they forced me to collect 
seeds from plant populations in very specific ways. Like you have to make sure the population's big enough. You have to make sure that you're not doing any damage to the, to the population uh, by collecting the seed. I mean, as, as well as plenty of other things. There were so many restrictions on where you were allowed to collect from, especially when you're finding brand new populations of target species. Yeah. It was just interesting to see that. And like, it's fun to kind of go into the literature and, and see actually why they set those regulations for us. So. And for someone like myself, who's a novice, I would think, well, if you're doing some kind of restoration planting, if you can get local and use local, that's great. But there's another paper we'll talk about, the one called How Local is Local, where you also have to think about diversity. Because even if you're collecting local plants, but it's from one population, and like you said, maybe a small population, there's not going to mm-hmm. be a lot of genetic diversity. So they're not going to be able to adapt as well, theoretically anyway, in the face of changing conditions. Definitely. Yeah. So because our program is so new, we looked out and reached out to partners who we felt had a lot more experience in that. And so one of those main partners was the Mid-Atlantic Regional Seed Bank. And they work with the Seeds of Success program. And so starting out seed collecting, we looked at their seed collection protocols and then actually worked with our Natural Heritage program and our Stewardship and Planning Bureau to develop a seed collection protocol so that we felt like the methods we were using when we seed collected kept in mind genetic diversity and population size and local ecotypes. And we definitely, when we are out in the field collecting, we rely on these strategies and take a lot of data and look at population size and collecting evenly across populations and all those different strategies to make sure that the seed that we bring back is as diverse as possible because every step down the way to when we put it out, we're putting selection pressures on it. And so we're losing that genetic diversity. And so therefore we want to start out with the maximum that we can that we can have. Yeah, just to give people an idea, the, the paper we're talking about, it listed just a few benefits. Genetic diversity, the higher it is, it could improve establishment success. It can increase resistance to pests and pathogens. And it also could support faster recovery after disturbance or climactic extremes. So just a few reasons why you want to have that in mind. So you mentioned seed collecting. Do you get to go out and do seed collecting? Yeah, yep. So a major part of my job in the fall is out in the field. And even before the fall, looking for the different populations and looking for species in general that we want to collect from for the projects, looking for populations that are large enough to collect from and looking for a diversity of populations that are close by the project site, often at the project site, or within the general area. So it's a lot of scouting, and then in, once we're in the field, it's a lot of collecting. And we can't just go up to the first plant and take all the seeds from the one plant. <laughs> so, right. so it takes time to evenly go across an entire population and figure out what the bounds of that population yeah. are. Not to mention, you're also going to these populations multiple times a year to make sure you're getting all of the different dates of seed maturity. That's something I didn't think about before Bridget was looking into it further. She doesn't want to go out at one time of year because then she's isolating the plants that are mature at that point. Right. Yeah, one of the papers brought up a a seeding bias. So if you're not collecting over a period of time, then you're definitely just selecting for certain genes that maybe flowered and fruit early compared to the whole diversity of of that flowering time that you could be collecting from. So, yeah, that's also something I hadn't thought about before really reading into the literature. Like most Mm -hmm. things in ecology... It's hugely, frustratingly complex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was actually, I was actually part of the Seeds of Success program. And that was something that now I'm only realizing later that we were supposed to, if I'm remembering right, we did collect over our entire field season or, you know, as soon as they started producing and then we collected slowly as time went on. So we were following that protocol 
and I guess it, it's all starting to make a lot of sense. You didn't, you didn't, <laughs> yeah. you didn't know why at that time. Well, they, they're great. The Chicago Botanical Gardens is great. They, I was working with the Bureau of Land Management in Utah at the time, but they gave us a flash drive with paper after paper after paper backing up every single thing that they had us doing. There was no way I was going to read every single one of their <laughs> statistics papers, all their methods papers. They're really, really thorough. That's an excellent program. And it's, I imagine it's still going, right? Yeah, it's yeah. definitely still going. And what I really like about the program is not only are you having these seeds that are have a diverse genetic origin, but also you're keeping a record of where plants are. And so it's both herbarium specimens as part of the, the program. So you mm-hmm. add that, but also you add all the details that you're putting on this form. So it really helps. And that's one thing that we found is while we're collecting, we need to record where we're collecting right. because we don't want to go back to that same population Double collect. Right, exactly. We think about the percentages across the population that we can collect. Um, So generally we're talking under 20% across the population and then over what period of time. So we wouldn't return to it if we collected 20% for three to five years later. So that means we have to spend a lot of time scouting for new populations because once we secure one, we have to find more. Sure. Well, and in your research of your population locations, you're also finding out maybe if other people are collecting there, and she's taking that into account uh, in terms of how much she can collect. Is am I the only person collecting? Oh, in that's this really space? smart. Yeah. And and that way, you know that you're being responsible with the natural population, and then all the research that goes into is this actually a natural population, like you were mentioning, Steve. Mm-hmm. So anytime a new site's found. Bridget's making about 100 different phone calls <laughs> to make wow. sure that nothing was planted or brought in. All right. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but I remember just from my seed collecting days that it was really important to get site data as well as we were also taking note of all the plant species that were growing around and within. All the data that's attached to those seeds is pretty big. Like you have the GIS data, you have the soil data, you have the you know slopes and aspects, you have, the, you have everything that you, you know that, that you could want in terms of knowing how to use that seed later as like a local ecotype because we're collecting it from the wild from wild populations and then presumably to be used later if something happened to that area what you just said kind of leads into the paper that bridget shared with us the how local is local paper Mm -hmm. so that focused on genetic diversity and the importance of genetic diversity but it did look at some of the the on the ground realities for a lot of organizations doing ecological restoration they're kind of faced with two things and that's number one there's not a lot of data out there for a wide variety of plant types. So they don't know, as we were saying on the way here, Steve, they don't know what they don't know about (laughs) certain plant types. And then there's also the financial, the time, all of these needs that go into making sure you're using local if you can, that you're collecting seeds in the right way or collecting plants in the right way to maintain genetic diversity. So it can be difficult. For organizations, especially ones that don't have all of the funding that you guys have, right? (laughs) (laughs) I wish we weren't laughing right now. Yeah, (laughs) I know. There's all these issues that came up within the literature that didn't occur to me just as someone just thinking, oh, we just use local plants and everything's great. It's so complex and there's so many factors that you have to juggle. I don't envy you having to deal with all of that. Both of you uh, Whitney and so I think it brings up a unique point, though, is prioritization. And so if we're putting all the time and resources into finding these species that you can't get in a nursery setting and with the hygienic diversity and local, you want to prioritize to the projects that make the most sense. Right. And so while there's a ton of plants going in across near state parks, and ideally they would all be local ecotypes, 
we have to figure out which restoration projects are restoring these valuable places and what are the valuable species that we can provide for this. So you have to set priorities. And that paper, I love the last thing they said at the end. Steve, you may have noticed this, but he said, I'm going to read a little bit here. He said, the science of ecological genetics and the practice of restoration would benefit greatly by increased collaboration between practitioners and researchers. We can make restoration projects into experiments in ecological genetics. So it would be documenting what you were just talking about before, Bridget, where plant materials come from, where it's planted in the site, but then how it performs. So survival, growth, reproduction. And he said that thousands of restoration projects being conducted could be transformed with relatively little modification into thousands of experiments in local adaptation. Great thing to say, but <laughs> again, where's that funding going to come from, right? Yeah. yeah, seems like a lot of work. Sounds so, like hundreds of phone calls. Whitney, I think you should hire Steve as the person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of Head our, that like, up. work for free. Yeah. We're, we're, no, if you want to do that, we're more than happy to hire you on. As long um, as I can put on my resume. So. A lot of our projects, we're trying to um, support with grant funding to hire excess staff to do just that. We want to do really in-depth assessment and monitoring beforehand, but also have follow-up. We can't do a whole lot of research as New York State Parks because that's not our focus. We reach out to outside partners to do research for us, but the -the on-the-ground monitoring and the directly applicable to the field exercises kind of thing, that's what we can do. So monitoring how these populations are doing after the fact is something that we're going to have data on. That's great. Yeah, specifically, I mean, a big part of why this program started is because a lot of our projects in restoration or just enhancement for habitat involve removing invasive species and you need to put something back in that's going to do well and is going to be adaptable after the fact and there's kind of two approaches to invasive species removal right you can either focus on getting rid of the invasives or you can focus on promoting the natives and by putting in plants that Bridget grows out through the plant materials program for for the region it's it's promoting the natives, and that's a really wonderful um, thing to put out there, I think. I don't think that's most people's perspective. And so if we're getting these plants in there that have every advantage, then we can start to focus on, no, we're not going to count the percentage that our invasive species decrease for our metrics, but maybe we're going to count how much native biodiversity increases. And right. and just that change of approach, that more positive vibe to this monitoring <laughs> right. is something that people in our uh, in our realm need because sure. I feel like it's getting increasingly hard to be optimistic in this field with invasive species. Yeah. The longer you spend in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, honestly, the persistent optimism, I think, is the most important part of our jobs. And this is making it easier. I think talking about experimentation, though, it's not only in the restoration outside element, it's also in the greenhouse. Sure. And so once you collect the seed and you're trying to mimic those natural processes in which the seed um, would overwinter and then grow in a restoration site, so we have to mimic that all in a greenhouse setting or in a refrigerator if we're stratifying (laughs) things. And so we've reached out to a lot of different growers and we use the U.S. Forest Service puts out protocols for producing plant materials and so we'll use those but those aren't completely all the resources we could use and so a lot of times we do have to experiment and a lot of this program is experimenting with the space that we have the species that we're collecting and merging that with the research that we found to figure out how best we can go from seed to plant with the resources that we have. So one thing I wanted to bring up before we move on 
is something that I, w- I actually didn't really consider before reading up on this a little bit more. And that is, let's say you have two populations that uh, they don't breed together. So they're totally separate. And they both adapt to similar ecological conditions over enough time to, to where they've differentiated into ecotypes. And they, they seem like they're the same. Uh, there is still a problem with using individuals from one of those populations to do restoration in, in, the, other. in the other population. They're not interchangeable. Yeah. And, and one of the things that one of the papers had brought up was that sometimes, um, well, now we get a little bit into phenotypes and genotypes, but a phenotype is just the way a plant acts or the way a plant looks right. under certain... The, the physical expression. Yeah, the of physical expression of... What's in their genes. Uh, of their genome, yeah. yeah. And sometimes the phenotypic expression of a particular gene is somewhat dependent on many other genes. And if you start breeding that plant with individuals that it didn't evolve with, it could actually lose those characteristics because if those if that complex of genes is lost, then it just doesn't have that advantage that it once had. So even if two plants seem like they're the same in terms of the way they respond to their environment, they very likely evolved in slightly different ways. And so they're not actually as compatible as you would think they are. Does that make sense? Is that is that clear? Yeah. yeah. So that's why we actually use the Omernic level four ecoregions. And so Omernic developed ecoregions. And at this level four tier, it breaks New York State. Well, actually, it breaks the Finger Lakes region of New York State parks into five different ecoregions. And so these different ecoregions are defined in terms of geography, geology, soil features, climate characteristics, natural vegetation, and land cover and land use. So that means in just the Finger Lakes region, we have multiple parks that we have to collect for in zones that are divided and that aren't political boundaries. Which plants don't care about. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yep>. Or animals. <laughs> so that was one thing you wanted to mention. What yeah. was the other thing you wanted to mention? The other thing kind of going into why local matters is thinking about how plants travel and not just the plant itself traveling, but also pollination. Part of this ecoregion and thinking about how specific for each park the ecoregion is, it's important in thinking about if we were to plant genetics from a different ecoregion, even in maybe like a landscape setting, it's likely that these genetics could travel and spread to populations in natural areas. And then we might degrade or influence the genetics of those natural areas and therefore maybe lose certain plant genotypes considering that if it's bee pollinated, it might travel a two mile radius, but if it's wind pollinated, it would travel even larger radius than that. And that kind of goes along with what you were saying, right, Steve? Mm -hmm. Whitney, you said you wanted to talk about nativars? Yes, so I've never heard of nativars. I think it's a newly coined phrase because something that we- Like (laughs) emoji? Yeah, but- (laughs) It's a portmanteau, right? Native and cultivar, right? Yes, well, and something that we talk about a lot when um, Bridget's doing tours of her project here at Sonnenberg, is that Mary Thompson really liked to work with what was in fashion at the time, which um, at one point meant an Italian garden and at one point meant a moon garden. Those are both here. And now it's it's native plants are coming back into style, thank goodness. But it's so much easier for you to grow a plant that has been altered to do exactly what you want with the least amount of effort and so it feels like a lot of greenhouses lately are promoting the idea of nativars. And that's something that is a native plant, so something that maybe you know is native to New York State, but it's altered in some way, you know, to have more showy blooms than it's 
uh, normally supposed to, or yeah. to withstand more drought than it normally would. Right. And the truth is, our native plants are really well adapted to what we've got here, as long as you're using the right thing for your space. Right. And most things, if you have an ideal garden bed, are going to do just fine. I planted some things in my own garden that are native species that grew double the size they were supposed to because I had a really nice garden bed and I wasn't expecting it. All my levels are off. But anyhow, so these native ours, if you go into a greenhouse and you're trying to do the best thing possible and look for plants that are native to New York State, you know, even if you've looked at the New York Flora Atlas and you know that Rudbeckia laciniata is something that you absolutely want, it's a native species, and you get there and they have a native ours of it, you might have no idea that you're buying Rudbeckia laciniata Orange variety. paintbrush. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and... no, because a few years ago, I wanted to plant a pollinator garden. Mm -hmm. And trying to find local native plant sources, there were so many nurseries that I'd call them on the phone, oh, yeah, we have native plants. We have this these species you're looking for. And I'd go in, and it's a variety. It's Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. the genus and the species are there, but it's been modified. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I went to um, the public market, the Rochester public market even, and saw this vendor that had all these wonderful native New York species and I was reading them and um, realizing the exact same thing and I asked, do you have any straight natives? And, and the vendor said to me, no, they don't grow well. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not true, but I didn't stand and have an argument. But um, I think one thing I want to point out is that greenhouses are going to grow what you want. Right. And if you want straight native plants, which is what phenologically our local insect species, our local bird species that's want. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're expecting. Um, they evolved with. You, you need to ask for them or seek them out a little harder. Yeah. And um, I think that it's starting to take hold of this native plant movement, the native ours. And, and that's something I want to I wanna try and keep in check until we know more about them. And mm -hmm. we actually have two great native plant nurseries in our area, the Plantsman in Ithaca and White Oak Nursery in the Canandaigua area. But I also want to point out, even though we're a state agency, we are still looking for permission when we collect from sites. And so I don't want to encourage anyone at home to collect from sites without <laughs> permission. <laughs> so you don't know who else is collecting there. Right. You want to make sure you're collecting in the most sustainable manner because it's not going to make sense to damage a natural area to put it in your garden. Right. If 10 different groups are all collecting sustainably unbeknownst to each other, right. it's yeah. not being done sustainably. Exactly. <laughs> and not only that, there's a chance that if they don't have the training, they might not be able to, if they're doing any seed storage or anything, they might mess that up and just kill a bunch of seeds. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and something in Bridget's protocol, you know, you don't, maybe everybody's collecting from what is an annual population too. And then there's no mm -hmm. seed to restore that population for the next year. That'd be embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'd be awful. <laughs> 10 people show up to the same place the next year and there's nothing there. Well, there's one last thing that I wanted to cover, and it happens a lot when we're researching that we find out fascinating stuff, but this paper that you shared with us, it was by Thomas A. Jones from 2013 in Bioscience, and it talked about ecologically appropriate plant materials, and I have never loved a paper more than I loved this paper. <laughs> I actually read this paper like three times. I think I'm probably the oldest one here, but as I was reading it, the, the author's name, Thomas A. Jones. I kept picturing Tom Jones, the singer. <laughs> Do you guys know him? It's not unusual to have yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I really hope that it's him, but it's probably not. Tom Jones is like a crooner from you know the 60s. But I love this paper because it challenged the way I thought about a facet of ecology. But it not only challenged it, which can make things uncomfortable when you're reading it, but every question that I had, but what about this, but what, what about this, 
it would address that later in the paper. So I felt like, man, this guy's good. <laughs> so I, I encourage people to read this paper. I hope it's one that is open access, that anybody, everybody can access. I haven't checked that. It was basically looking at what is ecologically appropriate and that we shouldn't automatically assume that local is best. Because I'm going to read a little bit here. It says, the tactics of ecological restoration should be based on ecological considerations for the amelioration of past environmental damage and tolerance of present environmental stresses. So we want to repair the damage that we've caused, but we also want to be cognizant of the conditions as they exist and what's going to be there in the future. This stands in contrast to a model whose central emphasis is on the reintroduction of taxonomic entities that were once present before damaged modified the ecosystem. So I have kind of a traditionalist, you know, just I naturally tend that way. I'm a fan of all the Leopold. We should try to get things back to the way they were, and I know that's debatable about, well, when do you take them back to, right? That's a whole other issue there. But he was very democratic in his approach, and he was basically just saying, look, we can't just automatically assume things in ecology, and we need to say not only what was here previously, we need to be thinking about what's going to be successful. He talked about local adaptation not being a prerequisite for desirable ecological function. So just because it's local doesn't mean it's the best candidate for this site. Maybe we need to look at species that are pre-adapted, which to me that term set up a red flag. What the hell does that mean, pre-adapted? I don't like the sound of that. Yeah, I, I like that he focuses on success of ecosystem because you can imagine something, a plant that's very successful like let's say an invasive species right. may not be it may not make a successful ecosystem right. in terms of the loss of biodiversity but that was kind of his point is that very often we tend to think of restoration as we have this checklist of species we're almost thinking of them as individual components we just need to replace the individual components and he's saying well no no we need to take a step back and look at the big picture what's going to fit together and do well given present conditions Whitney you were talking about before invasive species so the Nature Center I used to work at, I constantly had people saying, we need to remove all of this Tartarian honeysuckle. Uh, it's just taken over. But it was a relatively small site. If we were to remove that Tartarian honeysuckle, there was no plan, comprehensive plan, to put anything else there in its place. And even if there was, given the size of the site, what are the chances that that was going to take hold? And within 10, 20 years, we would just have all Tartarian honeysuckle again. There needs to be a well-thought-out plan. So he went on to say that ecologically appropriate plant materials, what does that mean? Well, plant materials that embody three characteristics. Ecological fitness, they're adapted to do well, whether that's because they evolved at that site or because they have adaptations that, as a generalist, they may have evolved somewhere else. There's also compatibility with other members of the community and then a lack of invasive spread to adjacent sites. We don't want them accidentally becoming invasive. He said that that definition, ecologically appropriate, has no implication regarding a local or non-local origin. He's almost setting that aside and just saying, is this plant appropriate? So for sites with minimal disturbance, ecological appropriate plants may be local in origin and require no trait enhancement through plant breeding. That phrase trait enhancement also sets off like a, eh, you know, I don't know if I like that. This includes rare plant species, species with limited geographic distributions and the like. However, for novel ecosystems, ecologically appropriate plant materials are for the additional option of employing 
plant breeding methodology to augment genetic diversity and enhance performance. So for ecological appropriateness, he said, maybe we need to consider local has value versus local is best, which again, when I first read this, I'm like, yeah, I don't like this, but I know there's a lot of questions that listeners may have, or you guys may have, but I encourage our listeners, especially to check out this paper because he did a good job of addressing a lot of the questions that popped up into my head. And like with most things with ecology, his standpoint just seemed, seemed to be, instead of rushing to do what we think is best, we really need to stop and consider all the factors that we can. That's why our program starting off has tried to start as conservatively as possible. Yeah. And then to move forward, we need to take the time and do the research to figure out what right. makes sense. Because one thing that immediately comes to mind is even if we have this novel ecosystem where we put in maybe a more ecologically appropriate plant or species or population, what about next door where you right. have a natural area where there's that the same species and maybe there it's doing great. So the, <laughs> the intermixing of the genetics, so just like thinking about the long term and what is the effect and how will those genetics that you enhance spread so but i think still we're a new program we want to go start mm -hmm. as conservatively as possible but definitely do their research and think moving forward what makes the most sense for specific projects like most things with ecology i don't think there's you know one rule that you can follow in all situations it's so mm -hmm. site specific species specific situation specific okay so how we're different from a normal nursery is that we can provide any species that you ask for as long as it exists out there and it's it's feasible that we can collect from it which gives project managers a lot more freedom and so working with project managers we need to come up with a really good species list and there's a lot more flexibility because we're contract growing and so we use a lot of different resources in developing these species lists part of it is the natural heritage program in a lot of cases has already mapped out the natural communities and different species at sites. So we'll look at that information and records of plants in the area and both to see what to collect from, but also what are our reference ecosystems. So before we move on, one thing I did want to bring up was th this 2014 paper that I came across from Evolutionary Applications. If I remember right, it was a four-year study uh, using um, Sargastrum nutans, uh, the Indian grass. It was comparing local ecotypes versus cultivars. So the two groups were genetically distinct, but they actually had similar genetic variation. And what they found was that there was no difference in above ground net primary production, soil carbon, or net nitrogen mineralization rate in the soil. But this is why it's always important to read discussions of papers, yeah. because at first glance, it could seem like, oh, well, why, why, why are we using the local ecotypes if they're indistinguishable from the cultivars? And they actually bring up some good reasons that this paper needs to be read in more detail. <laughs> and, and partly because they say, A, this is a four-year study. So we don't know long-term effects of using cultivars instead of local ecotypes. So they're not saying use one over the other. They're just saying, just in this four-year study, this is what we found. But they also said there are still a lot of unknowns. So for example, they don't know what the effect would be on things like disease resistance, drought tolerance, and a lot of other quality of the characteristics that you'd normally look for over time to make sure a population is staying healthy. And I think that's so important in a lot of scientific papers because you just can't go by like the title because just so you know, the title is no effect of seed source <laughs> on multiple aspects of ecosystem functioning during ecological restoration. So that's why it's so important to read beyond the title because generally 
it's not saying exactly what you think you're saying, although it's a really good selling point, uh, you know, for people who are, who are looking for one answer or another. If, if, if I was trying to look for one answer and read this whole paper, I couldn't, it wouldn't be intellectually honest of me to say <laughs> cultivars are better than local ecotypes because the paper itself brings that into question too. They're, they're definitely putting some caveats in there. So, But just going off the title. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and it's also important that one thing that it kind of made me think about was states like Illinois where less than 1% of the state is remnant prairie. There's very little left of what was historically there. And unfortunately, I can see that maybe cultivars might have to be at least a part of that future. But, you know, I, I imagine where you can use local ecotypes, it's probably a good bet. I, I'm going to use the word bet to use that. But I have to imagine that some managers would also use cultivars as well, just because there's such a small amount of plant material out there to begin with. Yeah. Do you guys have any, any thought on that in areas where there's so little historical plant composition left? Yeah. Or sorry, I don't know if I, I, I may have forgot to say this in the beginning, these were using the same species. So they're just comparing um, a local ecotype to a cultivar, or I should say a nativar, the same species. Yeah, so I think it comes down to what you want to protect. Obviously, different people have different goals. And so I think for our sake in environmental stewarding our parks, we want to protect those local natural areas. Obviously, this other organization has a different goal of mimicking this natural area using cultivars and so I think it just comes down to your goal and so if we want to protect what's already there and these genotypes that have evolved in this area then we at this point still think that it makes sense to continue to protect those genotypes. Yeah and I totally agree in terms of conservation short-term structure and function of a restoration project isn't the same as long-term success in terms of keeping that genetic diversity there, running the fine line between inbreeding and outbreeding depression, and making sure that evolution can still proceed forward. Right, and we don't know for a fact what's going to happen to these natural areas, and if they can adapt, and if our climate models are accurate, and there's a lot of unknowns. So to decide to change and alter based on our predictions is putting a lot of pressures (laughs) that may not be based in fact. That's one thing we haven't even touched on at all in this episode is, you know, how does climate change factor in? You shared some papers with us, and honestly, I started reading them, and I said, oh, geez, this is opening a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> right. so, I think yeah. every episode we bring up climate change yeah. at least once, because it's, it's hard to avoid, you know? Good it's, thing it's, yeah. it's not really happening. Yeah, and I mean, part of, <laughs> part all right, of that... I, I quit the podcast. <laughs> part of that is looking at our when we determine what an ecoregion is, and if we're using these ecoregions and they're based off of current climate data, if we are predicting that the climate will change, does that mean ecoregions will change? Probably. So, but can we predict, like how accurately can we predict that? So a lot of the papers that I shared were saying we should use this information that we're predicting. And so what our program is starting conservatively, but also thinking into the future and we're not at that point yet where we're using different strategies to predict for climate change, something we're researching. Uh, so Whitney, is there anything else you want to share before we Really just some other differences between uh, the plant materials program here in Finger Lakes and, uh, and other similar programs. Other agencies have plant materials programs, but this one, because like Bridget said, is contract-based, we can grow out things that aren't available anywhere else that are very specific needs to project leads and things that are, of course, more local than any other place and are going to have high genetic diversity. 
but also uh, Bridget grows a lot of herbaceous species. Right now we're seeing mostly the woody cuttings because of course it's winter, but you can see the flats that all look slightly dead right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and a lot of other agency programs are doing mostly woody species, like your county is gonna have some great native tree saplings that you can purchase every spring and stuff like that. And then also, she's not selling anything. We're not selling anything or providing materials outside of the agency. This is all for New York State Parks and for multiple regions, not just Finger Lakes region, but all New York State Parks. And I think the only other one we didn't really touch on is just that Bridget's program, the plant materials program here, is supporting projects that have little to no money. A lot of our okay. restoration projects are getting some money for staff, but not a whole lot outside of that. So this is really ensuring that we're doing efficient and responsible work in some of the poorly funded aspects of our, our program. And Bridget, you're going to tell people how they could maybe help out? Yeah. So here we are at Sonnenberg Gardens, which is open to the public. In the spring, you're able to come and walk through the greenhouses where we're producing plants. We invite anyone to come and check it out. Also, we accept volunteers and any help we can get. And if you want to tell your local government or our Finger Lakes Regional Director, Fred Bond, if you're (laughs) enjoying this project, then, then please do. And we'll we'll contact information in the episode notes. All right, so uh, Bill and I would like to thank both Whitney and Bridget for their time and doing the episode with us. Uh, And always, we want to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Thank you, Mountain Misery Farms and Anthony Dosimo. I think that's how you say it. For becoming our newest patrons. And a special thank you to our top patrons, Rob, we named the dog Indy, Bethany, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, Morgan, and Alyssa. We also want to thank our new five-star reviewers, BB44 Yeah, RJR9416, Ryan Kriz, John from Pittsburgh, and Teague O'Connor. Thank you for taking the time to write a review. Yeah, and keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And don't forget, Bill and I are very soon going to record our Ask Us Anything bonus episode. So if you guys have any last-minute questions, definitely send us an email or write on our Facebook wall or send us a message. Yep. And you can check us out on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, at FieldGuidesPod. And look for us on Instagram at FieldGuidesPodcast. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on Patreon.com forward slash The Field Guides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, There are other ways that you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. We can all say bye. All right, thank you. Bye. Thanks.